before I take a chance to address the kids in the room, I just I feel, feel compelled to give God glory for something that happened a few minutes ago that directly involves you kids. So Kitty, Kay Lawrence came up and, and I was thinking, oh, she, she wants to share, share a prophetic word, share with the church. And she just said, uh, I feel like you're heavy. I feel like, you know, can I, is there something weighing on you, something I pray for you about? I said, I don't feel heavy. I feel distracted. And I was distracted about, I don't know exactly what the Lord wants me to share with the kids this morning. And so just, that's the first thing that we come to when we come to the Word. I want to address the kids for a little bit. And that particularly was, was a moment where I, I was thanking God, thank you, Katie, for being sensitive to the Spirit. And we were singing songs like, He is our God. This is our God who, who knows us and who speaks to us and who is aware of this church body. And, and I, I thank God that I get, got to be the recipient of that this morning. But knowing that, we're coming before the Word this morning. I pray that you would also be the recipients of that as well, that there is a God who speaks, who knows, knows our hearts and our minds and, and can grant some relief because I feel, I feel very relieved coming before the kids and saying, hey, kids, can I have your attention just for a second? I have a question for you and a big secret. The question is, how old do you have to be before you stop learning? How old do you have to be before you stop learning? 10, 18, 25, 75? How old? The truth is, and the big secret is, you never stop learning. And we also, the adults in the room, are just like you. I'm just like you right now. We never stop learning obedience. Obedience isn't just for kiddos like you and, and obeying mom and dad. Obedience is for all of us, and we're with you learning in that process. So you and me can talk about that like we know what each other is like because we are here learning with you. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning is we're going to talk about the joy of obedience I'm probably one of the least informed people when it comes to fashion. Nonetheless, I've been curious about a particular brand ever since I first saw it. And after a little bit of digging this week, I discovered that this brand showed up in the late 80s. I thought it was much more recent than that. It was created by an artist named Shepard Fairey, who embodied some of the punk culture of the time. His line of clothing is called Obey. And he created both its logo and its name as a sort of like experiment. He wanted to see how the viewer would respond to something they didn't quite understand so as to either pique their frustration or to pique their curiosity. Well, I can say that it worked because after having seen Obey plastered on t-shirts and hats and things, here I am wondering, what's the meaning? What's, why? Why? When you see the word obey in big, bold letters, questions start coming up. Should, should you question whether you're being told to obey or whether the person wearing it was obeying something? Are you supposed to want to obey? Or maybe it's supposed to make you despise the concept of obeying. Mr. Ferry, whether knowingly or unknowingly, has contributed to this confusion or distaste that we as a culture have for obedience. 
I think many of you would agree that we hear this word and even these specific verses in Philippians a certain way, and it's not necessarily positive. As you always have, obey, says Paul, and obey by working out your salvation. We immediately picture some drill sergeant hounding us and, and yelling at us to stay in line. We feel that, that reflex to resist being forced to do something against our own will. We hate the thought of being under somebody's thumb. We like being our own person. We convince ourselves that obedience is this hateful, freedom-destroying word. I think this sort of reaction is based on our misshapen view of what obedience really is. Our unbelief prevents us from seeing obedience to God as joy-filled and actually satisfying to our souls. Instead, we have this idea that it's robotic and that it's not worth our, our time or our effort. Obedience as a creature who serves the Creator is what you and I were made for. And it's only through Christ that, that humans are enabled to recapture that purpose. But we need the help of the Spirit of God to clear the mud from our eyes so that what Paul is saying to us leaves us striving and pressing on towards something good rather than throwing in all sorts of ifs and buts and caveats as to why obedience isn't so essential in the grand scheme. Paul is well aware when he's talking to these Philippians that not being physically present with these believers in Philippi will lead them to be tempted to be complacent. They'll become okay with all sorts of fractured relationships. Maybe they'll end up like the Corinthians, greenlighting all sorts of junk and immorality and favoritism. Maybe they'll start to allow additional standards to, to come in to the simple call of the gospel like the Galatian church did. Maybe they'll succumb to fear of those who oppose them. Or maybe they'll turn away when suffering comes. There's always the possibility of losing sight of the Savior that Paul just described to us in Philippians 2. Besides, it would be easier if the Philippians had someone there with them, reminding them, spurring them on, especially an apostle. But the same threat is what we face as a church and as believers. Conceit and selfishness, a low commitment to loving one another, apathy, division, living in ways that can betray the transforming power of trusting in Christ. Those are all threats to us right now things that we should give careful attention to. Paul has called us to let our life and our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ in chapter 1, verse 27. And then he's called us to have a humble mind like Christ in chapter 2, verse 5. And what he's going to call us to in these two verses is in line with those prior commands. And, and what I think Paul wants us to see is this. Our collef- collective effort of humbly obeying the exalted Christ is hard, joyous work made possible by the power of God. Our collective effort of humbly obeying the exalted Christ is hard, 
joyous work made possible by the power of God. If you're a Christian, you have a lifetime ahead of working by God's power, not just to fulfill a duty, nor just to become some better you, but to experience a life that is increasingly a living sacrifice offered to the worthy one, the King of kings, who has lovingly claimed you as his own. That leads me to the first of two exhortations in these two verses. First, in verse 12, obey adamantly, just like our Savior did. Obey adamantly, just like our Savior did. It reads like this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Paul absolutely loves the Philippian church. He said in chapter 1, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. He's an affectionate friend who longs for what is best for his brothers and sisters. So as you read these verses, try to, try to brush away that picture of, of a drill sergeant and replace it with a truer picture. Therefore, my beloved, Paul says, I'm telling you what I'm telling you because I love you. I'm calling you here to obedience because I love you and because it's good. Now, therefore, the very first word is a whopper of a word. It tells us that Paul just said a few things to the Philippians that explain why he's about to tell them what he's about to tell them. He's saying, keep on sticking with this gospel sort of life that I've seen you living your humility, your love for Christ, your love for one another. But why? What is it that should make us want to obey Jesus, especially when that concept has left a terrible taste in our mouth? That's where we have to look at those previous verses that he's referring to. The Son of God, who created all things, became the humble human servant who walked the path of obedience to his Father in heaven. And look what happened to him. He was tasked by the Father and he labored to do the Father's will. And what did the Father do? He exalted him, not only restoring him to his former glory, but giving him a name above every other name, such that every knee will bow to him and every voice will confess that Jesus is the Lord of all things. We see in Jesus what God does to those who obey him. He rewards, he blesses, he exalts, he glorifies, and none more than his beloved son. So, obey God because you're following and believing in a Savior who obeyed with every fiber of his being. We don't rejoice in his obedience and claim his righteousness just to go on doing nothing. But we do rejoice in that with, with joy inexpressible. We thank him for his righteousness that makes salvation possible for all of us. We rejoice in his righteousness and experience freedom from the oppressive law and we step into a new kind of obedience. A free and a glad obedience. A grateful obedience because we are not under the thumb of the law anymore. We are under grace. We live under this code of conduct that, 
that is a banner under which we march, not a crushing weight that's looming over us. I've always been fascinated by by James because he calls it a law of liberty. A law of liberty because we're free, not just unshackled and free to do whatever, free to be slaves of righteousness who can, for the first time, obey God from the heart. Our obedience is made possible by Christ and we're motivated to follow in his humble footsteps. And I feel this morning that one of our greatest needs as a church today, no matter, I'm realizing that no matter what, um, what generation we fall into, no matter what age, no matter what experiences we've had, we need our, our understanding of obedience to be rewired by the Holy Spirit. I think that starts with asking the question, what did Jesus himself have to say about obeying God's commands so we can be conformed to that understanding? Well, Jesus, Jesus thought that listening to the Father and doing his will was a very good and essential thing. Listen to just a few things that he says. First from John six thirty-eight, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He lived to do what the Father sent him to do. Also from John, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's clearly important to Jesus that he does the will of the Father and only the will of the Father. And that's seen most poignantly and clearly in Matthew 26, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And here's where the obedience comes in. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He had a very clear sense that obedience to his father was foundational for his life. He knew that it required a lot of him. He was not fooled or mistaken by that. But it was also very motivating because he knew how good the one was who was giving him the commands. He trusted the father and he knew that the Father's requirements were good. You might say, well, that's Jesus, and I'm me, and I don't find the call to obey God exciting at all. Again, I'd point you back to how Jesus understood what obeying his Father held for him. He knew the Father. He knew that what he was doing would yield massive reward. Dan referenced this last week, but Scripture said that there was joy ahead for Jesus on the other side of the cross. Now, I found myself saying out loud last week, man, that's some joy. Seriously, that's some joy that would tell Jesus that what you're about to walk through is somehow losing your life is somehow going to be worth it, more worth it than you could imagine, more worth backing out. In that passage, the author of Hebrews is saying, let the joy that propelled Jesus forward propel you forward in obedience as well. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, saints of old who have walked this path before us, because that's true, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we to run this race of obedience? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set ahead of him, set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And what's true of him now? Because he endured looking to that joy, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you, could, you can hear some of Philippians 2, 1 through 13 in that. Jesus was humbled, and then he was lifted up and exalted, and all people will know that he is the king. So we strive to passionately obey all that Christ commanded with endurance because Jesus has shown us that it is worth it. He was exalted for doing so. Do you think that God will not also exalt us too? You may remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee where the the tax collector begs God for mercy and goes to his house justified while the Pharisee is left boasting that he's not so bad of a sinner after all. Here's how Jesus ends that parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You will be exalted for humbly and joyfully obeying God. I think, I think all of us need to go to Jesus' school of obedience so that we can learn exactly what it means that, that God is calling us into something good and glorious and satisfying. He's not, he's not just out to make things painful for us because sometimes I feel like we can get stuck in a mode that thinks, God doesn't have my best interests in mind because he's asking something that's demanding or he is, he is requiring too much of me, which I'll get to in a second. But, all, but, but going to Jesus' school of obedience will help us learn exactly what Jesus means when he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light for you. I'm not here to crush you with requirements and demands. That's what the law functioned as, as this kind of guardian to show us what sin's like and what the holiness of God is like, but coming to Jesus equals finding rest for our souls. His yoke is not like the law. It's full of being free to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which in some ways, under that that burden of the law, we're, we're not free to really do that. We know that we're accepted through Christ, and that, that starts to help us understand what John says in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, or the love for God, the love that you have for him. This, this is it, that we keep his commandments, and his commands are not burdensome. You might say, they sure feel burdensome to me. They feel impossible, and I'm failing at this, this, and this. I ask you, what kind of striving are you doing? I was asking myself that question this week. What kind of striving are you doing? What is it that you're working for? Are you still working to get God's attention or to prove something to him? Are you laboring without any sense of hope that what you're doing is, is satisfying and, and actually pleasing to God? Or are you following in Paul's footsteps? 
when he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, that, that final confirmation. Not that I have already obtained this, that resurrection, or am already perfect. I'm not perfect. But I press on to make the resurrection my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. I am his. And that's why I'm pressing on so hard. I'm already his. Now I want to live to bring him glory and pleasure and honor and praise forever. So obey adamantly. Be passionate about obeying what God has commanded you because Jesus was obedient to death for us. That, that little concept that's, that was just mentioned a few verses earlier is that Jesus was obedient and now you are suddenly and for the first time free to live like he did, free to obey. Now, circling back, do you feel that being called to obey is unfair? Do you feel like God is requiring too much of you or that he's just making all kinds of demands that are unrealistic? I don't think that was Jesus' take, nor should it be our take on God's commands. I had a friend share something this week, providentially, that, that really stuck. We weren't, we weren't talking about any of this, but he said, we're not aiming for bare minimums in following Christ. That is, that is not what we're shooting for, what, what our goal is. We're not aiming for bare minimums in following Christ. We're not meant for holding back. We have an eternity of thankful obedience to give. And we have the Spirit of God who was sent specifically to help us. The same Spirit who can also be at work to change our perception of the one doing the commanding. Isn't he good? Isn't he patient with us in our failings? Isn't he right in what he's commanding us? May we be committed like Jesus to doing the will of the Father. I don't think I've ever, you guys might be able to test this, I don't think I've ever said that of my life once, that my life is to do the will of the Father. And I need the Spirit's help to, to help me understand that that is the most worthy pursuit of an entire life, is to do exactly what God desires for us to do. We don't want to be kicked back, excusing ourselves of sin, being spiritually lazy, but we want to be actively paying attention to this word. What is it commanding me to do? What is it me calling me towards? Well, prior to that, what, is, what has Christ done for me? Who is it that I've committed my life to? Who is it that I call Savior? Who is it that, that has obeyed in my place and given me, clothed me, and, and become righteousness to me? Look at his word, then move, move to what is he requiring me? What is he commanding of me? So that I can long to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, in what way are we supposed to obey? I've been using this as a kind of blanket term, obey, obedience. What, in what way are we supposed to obey? The Philippians, for example, have been obedient by believing the gospel. Among them are Lydia and the Philippian jailer and others who have repented and believed. You can read about that in Acts 16. They've also obeyed by holding firm to the gospel against clear opposition from the magistrates. They watched Paul get beaten up for preaching the gospel, and yet they still hold to it. 
They've at least stuck together, even if there's some heavy disagreements in their body. So in what way are they being called to obey? By working out their salvation with fear and trembling. I haven't mentioned this yet, but the reason why our main point starts off with our, our collective effort, our collective effort in humbly obeying the exalted Christ is because every time you see the word you in this passage, it's plural. You are more than welcome to cross out, rewrite, write over top, y'all, your guys, you guys, youans, whatever you want, whatever reminds you that this is not just you individually. It's not, hey, you individually work out your salvation. That is part of it, but we cannot do any of what Paul has already asked us to do in this letter on our own. He's saying, work out your salvation equals standing firm in one spirit. It equals striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, being of the same mind, being in full accord, counting others more significant than yourselves, looking to the interests of others, along, along with a few things we'll come to later in the book, like do all things without grumbling, stand firm in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. All of those are facets of lives transformed by the good news of Christ. And they're things that we must do together, even if together means I personally need to be free from glory-seeking and conceit for the good of the whole and the accurate representation of Christ. We cannot obey the command to work out our salvation on our own. It's something that you and I are, are experiencing together. This church is experiencing this together. We are, we are helping each other do that very thing, working out our salvation. Now, are you still unclear on what work out your salvation means, even though you've heard it a bunch this morning? I'm, I'm right there with you. It is, it is something that we throw around very quickly and easily, and yet we still need clarity on it. Think about what Paul, exactly what Paul has instructed the Philippians to do. To unify themselves on the gospel of Christ so that their humble care for each other and their courage against opponents of the gospel grows. That all takes work. But if we dedicate ourselves to that work, it will do something. It will only affirm and verify our future salvation. It will prove to the judge himself that our faith in the gospel is sincere. The working out of our salvation is of utmost importance lest we become complacent and start to live our lives with the gospel as an accessory. Now, there's, there's a fine line to walk here. We're, we're saved by faith, which is a gift from God. There is simply nothing that we as cursed and sin-stained people could do to be at peace with a holy God. I think, I think all of us would proclaim that very quickly till we're blue in the face. We, we are happy that God has inserted himself and rescued us because we know for a fact that we weren't able to do that on our own. But get this, Paul is saying that real salvation is at stake here. Real salvation is somehow connected to your faithfulness in working out what you have believed. And that's why he's so passionate about calling us to obey. Because, yes, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. 
but it is verified. There's a stamp of approval and a, a confirmation by your manner of life. Now, if you're, if you're not convinced of that, James is, is in full agreement with Paul here. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The, the big question, can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. No, that faith cannot save. Jesus makes that same point in Matthew 7. No one ever, no one who, who ever, not everyone, excuse me, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What makes the difference? One person calls Jesus Lord and rehearses the gospel message up and down and raises their hands in worship and quotes scripture just as this other person does. If one enters the kingdom of heaven and one does not, what makes the difference? Faithfulness to do the will of God makes the difference. Obedience does make a difference. It is not what saves us, but it does confirm and verify our faith. For those who were on the youth retreat a month or so ago, which vine is the vine that thrives? Which vine is the vine that thrives? The one who abides in Christ is the one that bears fruit. The one who abides in Christ is the one who is obedient. But if that branch says they abide in Christ, says, Lord, Lord, but is unproductive and fruitless, it gets cut off and thrown into the fire. First Peter says that, that that person who is unproductive has, has lost sight that they've been cleansed from their former sins. They are, they are not abiding in Christ. They've, they've forgotten how significant that that is. So obey adamantly because Jesus did. And that's just not, hey, just do what Jesus did. It, it is meant to to give us wings, so to speak. It is meant to say he was so perfectly committed to obeying the Father and I want to, I'm, I'm being made like him and I want, to be, I want to be like him because what the Father commands is good. Let's ask this question together. Where have you and I grown complacent? We're, we're obeying half-heartedly but not adamantly. Where are you unwilling to be changed? We need the Spirit. We need the passion and long-term determination that Christ himself showed. We need it in fighting to prefer and love others more than ourselves, especially when they're in our own family. We need that deep joy to help us obey him in, in interceding for one another, for our leaders, in fact, for all people. There's countless ways that we could further submit our life to Jesus, but we want to make it our aim to please him who obeyed for us. That's what we want. We want him to get the praise. That leads us to the second exhortation. Obey in awe, because God himself is doing the work. Obey in awe, because God himself is doing the work. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If the example and exaltation of Jesus wasn't reason enough or motivation enough for us, Paul pulls out all the stops on why we should be motivated to work out our salvation. The Philippians were supposed to work out their salvation, and we're called to do that with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. How does anything good come out of fear and trembling? Wouldn't that just bring back that feeling of a weight that's wanting to crush us, to squash any motivation we draw from Jesus' obedience for us? We picture someone cowering under that heavy hand that's saying, obey, obey. Again, I'd say that's, that's not accurate. I don't think that is how Scripture talks about obedience nor fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is part of this process for one reason, because it is God who works in you. I'm not quite sure how to to communicate and package the effect that those seven words has, have, have had on me over the course of this week. It is God who works in you. Who is this who began a good work in us? Who is set on completing it? And who is right now at work in our hearts, working into us a love for him, working in trust in his son, working in a hatred of evil and a victory over sin. Who is it? It's the living God. The same God who spoke all things, seen and unseen, into existence. The same one who marks off the heavens with the span of his hand. The one who is worthy of the universe's worship. The same one whose glory made Moses' face shine the one who split the Red Sea and caused the earth to swallow his enemies, the one who commands thousands and thousands and hosts of powerful angels, the one who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who is also holy and righteous and who dwells in unapproachable light, who has officially conquered death, forevermore, who has the authority to forgive sins and to raise the dead, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, the one whom Satan cannot withstand, the one from before the earth was a thought, knew all there was to know about you, the one whose plans succeed and whose promises always come to pass, the humbly obedient one who is seated on his throne with a kingdom that will not be shaken and a name that is above every name. This God is at work in you. He's working in you personally, and he's working in this church. Sovereign grace, it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. And the only appropriate response for us is fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. If you want more clarity on how that is a good thing, I totally recommend this book to you called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. The point of this entire book is to show us that the concept of the fear of the Lord, ironically, is not something to be afraid of. 
The fear of the Lord, which is referenced so many times in Scripture, is not something that you and I need to be afraid of. That the solution to your anxious fears or sinful fear or, or misguided fear is delighting in the fear of God who loves fiercely and who is so glorious. I think that's what Paul has in mind here, a proper fear of God that leaves us trembling because we of all people know the glory of who it is that's working in us. Here's, here's one of the many helpful things that Reeves says in his book. The right fear of God, so as opposed to a sinful fear, a cowering. A right fear of God is not the minor key, gloomy flip side to proper joy in God. There is no tension between this fear and joy. Rather, this trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the sheer intensity of the saint's happiness in God. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a completely new thought for me. In other words, the biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of joy that is most fitting for believers. Our desire for God and delight in Him are not intended to be lukewarm. As our love for God is a trembling and wonder-filled love, so our joy in God is, at its purest, a trembling and wonder-filled, yes, fearful joy. For the object of our joy is so overwhelming and fearfully wonderful. We are made to rejoice and tremble before God, to love and enjoy Him with an intensity that is fitting for Him, and I'd say for Him alone. And what more befits His infinite magnificence than an enjoyment of Him that is more than our frail selves can bear, which overwhelms us and causes us to tremble. Normally, our joy in God is cold and tarnished, but as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we become ever more fearfully happy. And he goes on a little later to add that God is a happy God. He is, a, he is the author of joy. He is inviting us into that joy. The all-powerful, all-knowing, triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, are at work in you. I don't think that there's a Christian in the room that doesn't need to hear that this morning. He is currently and actively at work in your heart and in your life. And as he does so, we need to acknowledge that he is terrifyingly powerful and astonishingly gracious. And he has chosen to be at work in us. That gives me hope. It gives me hope for this church. It gives me hope for myself for every day after this one. Listen to this promise that God makes in Jeremiah 32 about a people being gathered up from the rubble of exile in Babylon. It's actually a promise for, for his church now. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Now, that's, that's something we can apply to obedience. I will not turn away from doing good to them. His commands are good. I trust him because he's committed to doing good. 
and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Now, think about our, the definition of fear and trembling that we just got. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. It's amazing to me that God rejoices over those who rejoice in fearing him. So, obey in awe. Obey his commands knowing that he's the one doing miraculous things to make you like Jesus and prepare this bride for himself. If you find yourself in a place this morning particularly where you, feel, you might feel discouraged, you feel like, I haven't, I haven't changed in so long and sin feels entangling to me. With every success in following Christ, every, everyone that I can remember, there's 20 reasons why he should give up on me. Do you know that it is the Almighty God who is at work in you? He isn't done. He's, begin, he's begun a good work. He's set on completing it, but you're somewhere in between. We all are. He is not, the, not only the author, but he's also the perfecter of your faith, and he will complete what he started, even if it's slow, even if it feels like the evil one is winning. Friends, don't underestimate the sanctifying power of the almighty God who works in you. There are some of you in this room who feel like they can't be faithful because of their capabilities, their capacities. You're fatigued or you don't sleep as well as others. You're not as mobile as you want to be or you feel psychologically debilitated. God is at work in you. That's a promise, and I pray that you hear that promise this morning. God is at work in you, and his pleasure and his delight in you does not depend on your capabilities or your restedness or your English or your book smarts or your energy level. That's not true for any of us, you included. He's still going to complete what he started in us, even if you can't lift a finger. And that's what the last part of this text is about. What is God doing in us? What exactly is he accomplishing? He works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Everything that you and I do that is good and honoring to God, every victory in moments of temptation, every ounce of sin put to death in your life has been the result of God's power at work in you. Think about that. He personally, and because he loves you, has brought that about. And so in that, there's a lesson for myself and for, ever, for whoever else is tempted to be a puffed up Christian. You can't steal credit or glory from the one who has actually brought the good thing about in your life. Even, even to the level of the job that you got or the, the children that you have, the type of children that you have, or the... the, the provision that you bring for your family or, or the, the accomplishments that you've, that you've made in, in school or otherwise, but especially what work has happened in conforming you to Christ. We have no right to swoop into the finishing touches of a building project and say, look what I did. You've been actively involved and have done the working out but as someone once put it, only because he has done the working in. 
John Piper describes things this way. God causes the miracle of our obedience that leads to salvation, but we act the miracle. You and I are living out the miracle of a merciful God who has not only saved us, but who is steadily and relentlessly working in us to accomplish his good purposes. We are useful to him in his good plans. We are worth his redemptive energy. We are being changed for our good. We are experiencing what resurrection life is like. But the credit goes to him. It is God who works in you. And I just picture that, that God that we described who is grand and glorious and wonderful sitting down with us, taking the time, pouring his resources of power and grace into your life. He, he doesn't just take notice of you. He is committed to you for eternity. He is working in you. He is, like, he, he's described as a potter for a reason. Somebody's sitting at the potter's wheel that's spitting and spinning and taking this lump of clay and working on it. His attention to detail is perfect. His meticulousness, his investment in what's going on in front of him. You are not some side job of God's. All you have to do to, to, to kind of be reoriented to that is why did he send Jesus in the first place? It was for us, to rescue us. And so the work that he's doing now is an outflow of that commitment, that, that I, will, I will take this cup. I will, I'm here to save sinners. And he's doing that. So at all costs, please don't read the last phrase of these verses as some haphazard comment. Well, it's God who does the work anyway. So no, work out your salvation. Work hard and strive and press on, as Paul says in Philippians 3, not just out of pure, cold obligation. Though sometimes it feels like, I know this is what God is telling me to do, and I, I don't feel like doing it, but I will. That's true sometimes, but, I, but in the grand scheme, we're not under law, we're under grace, and we are free to press on, free to obey adamantly and in all. Remember that the Almighty God is the one who is making all of this possible. And the progress of the work that he's wanting to complete depends on his endurance. It depends on his timeline and his commitment to you, which is not going to be thwarted. So I'll come back to our main point in closing. Our collective effort of humbly obeying the exalted Christ is hard but joyous work made possible by the power of God, the God who is himself at work in you.